This is a Piccolo podcast production. Welcome back, listeners. And today's shocking tale takes place at the Six Flags Great Adventure Park, located in Jackson, New Jersey, situated between New York City and Philadelphia. This park was opened in 1974 by visionary entrepreneur Warner Leroy and was acquired by Six Flags in 1977. The awful story we are telling today takes place in the spring of 1984. I'm your narrator, Alex Malone, and this podcast is brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. Welcome to Fairground Fuck Ups. It was May 11th, 1984. For the senior students at Franklin K. Lane High School, the clock was ticking before the end of the finals and the beginning of the rest of their lives. As an end-of-school blowout, a day trip to the Six Flags Great Adventure Park had been planned particularly with the seniors in mind. Ask any theme park aficionado and they'll tell you that if you can't make it to Disneyland, Six Flags Great Adventure is the place you want to visit. Grand designs and lofty ambition was ingrained in the park's DNA from its founding in 1974, when restaurateur Warner Leroy envisioned an entertainment complex so vast that it would contain 10 district vacation grounds, including a camping ground, a water park and a safari park. Leroy sold his interests to the Six Flags Corporation after three years and it was under their governance that Great Adventure was developed to be the chief competitor to Walt Disney's self-contained nation in California. Everything about Great Adventure would embody this simple principle. Bigger is better. Taking inspiration from the most popular rides at other parks operated by Six Flags, Great Adventure would become the park where you could do it all. Roller coasters, artificial water rapids and swinging pirate ships. For students exhausted from exams, Great Adventure Park was the reward for making their community proud. Not only that, but word had reached young Sammy Valentin Jr. that on the day of their trip, the park had booked the Dutch rock sensation Golden Earring, a band that is still together today for an evening performance. Sammy Valentin Jr. was a senior at Franklin K. Lane High School and arrived at the school's pickup zone to find at least 50 dirty yellow buses, all lined up in a row. Locating the senior students' buses, he searched for the crew he would spend the rest of the day with, Jose Carrion Jr., Lenny Ruiz and Eric Rodriguez. He found them all occupying the back seat of their bus and he walked past the rest of his classmates to join them. The turnout was huge. What looked to be something like a thousand students had opted to come along for the adventure. Teachers busied themselves in an attempt to keep track of groups from each grade. With the attending students being predominantly from the senior class, there was less need for constant supervision, and it was assumed that the young people would be responsible for themselves throughout the day. Sammy, Eric, Jose and Lenny settled in for the 90-minute drive from Franklin K. Lane High School to the Great Adventure Park. The massive convoy pulled up in the car park of Six Flags Great Adventure Park. The guys rolled out of their bus and merged in with thousands of other kids waiting their turn for entry. Sammy already knew that buses were leaving at 10pm. If anything happened to delay them getting out of the park and he missed the bus, he wouldn't get home until Monday. 
The teacher, seeming to sense the possibility of this, called out one final reminder for everyone to be responsible and be back in time. Given the number of students, doing a headcount seemed prohibitively difficult. The guys cruised through the gate and headed over to the shooting gallery. Two girls up at the stand caught Jose's eye and beckoned him and his friends to join them. Nicola Cayaza and Tina Genovese were keen to spend the day in the company of their classmates. With the daytime to fill before the concert finale that night, the group poured over the visitors' maps of the park, trying to orient themselves by that ever-so-comforting marker that reassures the wanderer, you are here. Even with the push for more and bigger attractions at Great Adventure, the haunted castle stood out as something of an oddity. First put together in 1978, the haunted house, as it was then known, seemed a throwback to the Adventure Park's ancestors, the travelling carnival or the boardwalk. At venues where the budget is tight, the haunted house is ideal. It is easy to find a place for an attraction that is relatively cheap to build, has no moving parts, and can operate even in the midst of a power outage. The unique challenge for Six Flags was to see if there was a place for such a low-tech feature when surrounded by the grandiosity of lightning hoops, roaring thunder and the raging rapids. The one thing Six Flags had in their favour at installing this fright house was size. Unrestricted by the limits imposed by lack of space or the need to make it easily transportable, the haunted house could be built bigger than any house of horror ever seen before. After a reasonable success with the initial attraction, the first haunted house was disassembled and shipped to Six Flags over mid-America in Missouri. Great Adventure dedicated a brand new lot to the construction of a replacement. At four times the size, this horror show attraction would give people thrills for hours. Dozens of staff were required to man exits, monitor the patrons and play the roles of monsters lurking in the dark to prey upon the unsuspecting victims. Classic movie monsters were shamelessly ripped off and so the attraction would play host to Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy and the Hunchback. On the exterior, an elaborate facade was constructed, complete with turrets, a drawbridge and a moat. Six Flags reasoned that they would generate a reasonable level of interest based on the public response to the original haunted house. They were completely unprepared for the haunted castle to become their most popular attraction by far. Young and old alike went wild for the pageantry and were thrilled by the macabre nature of the whole affair. It delivered on the sole essential element of any amusement park ride. It was fun. The high school group made their way to the haunted castle. They were met there by an iron gate and the gatekeeper, an 18-year-old park employee dressed in a cheap tattered robe to serve as their very own horror host. The crew joined a line of about 20 kids. It was late afternoon, but the park was still packed. A small teenage boy was nervously looking around. He moved out of his position in the line. He was stopped by an older boy wearing blue jeans and a Quiet Riot t-shirt. The Quiet Riot kid pulled out a kiss-labelled cigarette lighter. He quietly reassured his new companion that if he found the darkness ahead of them a bit too scary, all he had to do was tap him on the shoulder and the Quiet Riot kid would flick on his lighter. He bent his knees so he was at eye level with the scared kid and showed him what he meant. They both stared into the flame. The crew crossed the moat of the drawbridge and entered the haunted castle. 
It was pitch black inside. Though where light flickered, they could see it was full of mirrors. Some girl started screaming, it stank of pot. An actor in a Dracula costume jumped out. He spread his cape like a giant bat. The girls screamed and the boys kept moving on. Quiet Riot Kid and his new friend were up ahead after surviving an ambush by the mummy. It all got a bit too much for the young kid, who started tapping the shoulder of his new friend. Quiet Riot Kid pulled out his kiss-labelled lighter and lit it quick, producing a flame that was supposed to guide them to safety. He moved it closer to the wall so he could see where he was in the pitch blackness, but the wall caught fire. It was astonishing how quickly the flame soared up the wall. It was on the hunchback exhibit. The two teenagers started trying to pat the flames out with their hands, but it was too hot. The scream went out. Fire! Smoke plumed into the darkness. Kids started to cough. Sammy grabbed Jose and Eric. The boys looked confused, wondering if this was simply part of the haunted castle show. The confusion became panic soon enough as the flames worked their way along the corridors. Sammy started to push his friends away, trying to keep the group moving away from the fire, searching desperately for an exit. They slammed into a door at full speed. It was bolted with a chain. Tina flicked her cigarette lighter on. She got whacked in the shoulder by a screaming kid and her lighter hit the floor. According to the official report, the fire was called in at 6.45pm. 15 volunteer fire squads, a total of 300 men and women, attended the site. It took them 70 minutes to get the blaze at the haunted castle under control. Golden Earring played their concert in the park that night as scheduled. It was 10.45 when the crews were able to access and examine the site of the haunted castle. It was then that park authorities confirmed the worst. There had been casualties of the fire. Investigators were having difficulty determining the charred remains of the victims from the burnt remains of the mannequins used as features of the attraction. It wasn't until the buses departed at midnight that the supervising teachers noted that 33 students were unaccounted for. What they hoped was that they had opted to carpool with friends who had driven to the park and were not victims of the fire. Their families wouldn't know the tragic news until the following day. Eight teenagers were dead. Five were from Franklin K. Lane High School. June 1985. Assistant Prosecutor Kevin W. Kelly considered the waif-like girl in the witness stand with compassion. Her eyes remained fixed on the courtroom floor and she visibly trembled as she recounted the events of the day. At 15, Suzette Elliott was a little younger than the senior students from Franklin K. Lane High School who had attended Great Adventure. But she was friendly with Tina Genovese and Nicola Cayasa. She was more than happy to spend the day in their company and in the company of the young boys who had joined them. The haunted castle was supposed to be just one last laugh before the concert that night. Kelly patiently encouraged Suzette to walk the jury through the events that led up to the fire. Everyone thought it was some kind of prank when it started, how no one seemed to have any idea how to get out of the castle, how panic seized them all as smoke began to descend, stinging their eyes and leaving them short of breath. Suzette remembered to the point of collapsing and then being trampled underfoot by the patrons frantically trying to find their way out. Someone had tripped on her head and she was pretty sure she blacked out for a moment. When she came to, 
A park employee was gathering her up in their arms and carrying her away from the blaze. She never did learn who it was that saved her life. The assistant prosecutor asked her gently if anyone she knew survived. Suzette Elliott just burst into tears. The young boy sitting in the witness stand looked so much smaller than he had the day of the fire, when he had nearly turned back from his place in line. John R. Ford, representing Six Flags, spoke to him gently, as if to reassure him that there was no way he could get into any trouble for anything he was about to say. Everyone just wanted to know what happened. Looking as though he were about to vomit at any moment, the young boy, Joey Uraka, tried his best to tell the story as he remembered it. It was difficult. He kept forgetting his place. The little details about the day, how many people he had seen, what the time was. He was asked about Quiet Riot Kid. Could he tell the jury his name? Joey was quiet. He was quiet for a long time. I think it was Mark. The assistant prosecutor, Kevin Kelly, who had the responsibility of extracting justice for the grieving families, was questioning Chet Shermer, who was an expert witness for the defence of Six Flags in fire safety. Kelly asked Shermer, Given the complete absence of early warning systems, functional lighting or any reasonable method of containing a fire, how can you suggest that the park management were not at least negligent and at worst reckless in their approach to fire safety. As he finished his question, Kevin Kelly felt a surge of triumph. There could be no real recovery from this for the defence. Six flags were surely toasted. Chet Shermer began to answer. He spoke for 15 minutes in his expert capacity about the function and the operation of water sprinkler systems and was able to demonstrate that their presence at the haunted castle would have made no difference whatsoever to the outcome of the disastrous fire. He spoke at length about building safety standards in the complete absence of legislation regarding temporary structures such as the Six Flags attraction, created from used trailers and plywood. He spoke of the prohibitive costs of maintaining smoke alarms in the face of constant vandalism. He pointed out that attractions such as the haunted castle were designed specifically to disorient, to prevent the customers from knowing where they were, to frighten and to encourage panic. Had all lighting and equipment been functionally perfect, he said, the very nature of such a place prevents people from being able to make orderly and direct exits. In short, the haunted castle did exactly what it was designed to do. It functioned perfectly and Six Flags were not negligent. After that, It was Kevin Kelly who was left speechless. The trial went on for eight weeks, as prosecution and defence called expert upon expert to point the finger of blame. At the conclusion of both sides' argument, the jury spent 13 hours in deliberation. When assembled once more in the courtroom, the lead juror stood and took his place before the presiding judge, who asked, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? The lead juror paused glancing momentarily around the room. He caught sight of the parents of young Jose Carrion Jr. The father supported the mother around the shoulders with one arm, but his other hand held tightly to his wife's. Mrs Carrion stared at the floor of the courtroom, seeing nothing. Eight lives tragically lost. Children, every one of them. Dead because a series of stupid decisions and the compounded ignorance of countless people. 
And now their families sat and waited for the justice their children and these families deserved. Before sending them to their deliberations, the judge had admonished the jury to consider the proper course of justice and decide accordingly. Now, all the witnesses, all the testimony, all the evidence and all the arguments came to this one moment. All eyes in the courtroom were upon him, waiting to hear how he and his fellow jurors would dispense justice for the lives of eight children. Most employees responsible for the park had expressed their concerns about the deficiencies, but had felt powerless to improve the safety standards. Those in charge of the park struggled with limited budgets, but operated with the assurance that they were upholding their legal obligations. Those responsible for safety in the county had determined that the park's attractions did not fall under their jurisdiction, and so could not hold accountable the organisation or its staff. Experts held differing opinions as to whether it was even possible to make attractions like the Haunted Castle safe at all. When a single great mistake is made, the law is supposed to call the one who made it to account. It is as close as we can ever get to justice. The law weakens, however, where there are so many broken systems, so many failed decisions, that we cannot identify that one perpetrator. The failure, the injustice belonged to far too many to ever make it right. So, the lead juror turned his eyes back to the judge and said, To the charge of aggravated manslaughter, we find Six Flags Great Adventure and her parent company Six Flags not guilty. Two specific members of the management for Six Flags Great Adventure had personally faced criminal charges in the case of the Haunted Castle Fire. They pled guilty and were sentenced to a community corrections order, avoiding the possibility of up to seven years in prison. The eight families filed civil suits against the Six Flags Corporation, seeking damages for the wrongful deaths of their beloved children. Seven of the families settled with Six Flags out of court they each received $2.5 million. The family of Joseph Barute, the eighth member of the ill-fated group, were committed to taking their case and Six Flags to court. They were only awarded $750,000. After the haunted house fire, Six Flags implemented a comprehensive program to outfit all their temporary structures with fire suppression systems and ensure that lighting and signage were policed and maintained. The state of New Jersey passed legislation that covered the specific subset of buildings. Those designed to disorient, reduce vision, present barriers and impede the flow of traffic. In the future, such structures would have clearly defined fire and safety standards and would be monitored by a body that would take action should an inspection fail to meet guidelines. If you visit Six Flags Great Adventure and Safari in Jackson, New Jersey, you will find no haunted castle. There was never a discussion about rebuilding the ride. You will likewise find no memorial or marker to the event. After all, what amusement park would want to call attention to the fact that eight lives had been lost in a pursuit of thrills, no matter how long ago it happened? But if you go to the eastern end of the park, possibly looking for the roller coaster named The Dark Knight, you may notice a section of the park that has been cordoned off to the public. There is no special designation nor officially assigned purpose for the spot. Just an empty space, 
large enough to house 18 trailers and a blemish on the ground. Not an obvious one, not even one visible to the naked eye, but the hint of one, like an echo or a ghost, as if at one time fire and ash had roared and scorched the ground with such suddenness and terror that no amount of cleaning in the years has managed to erase it completely. Remember Jose Carrion Jr., Eric Rodriguez, Lenny Ruiz, Samuel Valentin Jr., Christopher Harrison, Joseph Beirute, Nicola Cayazza, and Tina Genovese. The Six Flags Great Adventure Park is still open today and a new roller coaster, the Jersey Devil Coaster, is set to open in 2021. I'm Alex Malone and this has been Fairground Fuckups. Season one of Fairground Fuckups will continue with new episodes released every Monday. This podcast was produced by Piccolo Podcasts. We make branded podcasts for local businesses or companies and produce our own original shows. If you want to know more about Piccolo Podcasts or are thinking of starting your own show, head to our website, piccolopodcast.com.au or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Piccolo Podcasts. The link to our website is in the episode notes.